Well, hi there. You're listening to the Planet LP Podcast, and I'm Ted Asrogat. If you're a longtime listener to this podcast, you know there are a handful of bands that have really meant a lot to me as a music fan. One of those bands is Rush. When their first record was released in March 1974, they had to create their own music label to get the attention of radio program directors in the all-important U.S. market. For a Canadian hard rock band, it wasn't easy to stand out among their contemporaries because most Canadian artists were signed to U.S. labels, and many of those artists resided in the United States. It took the addition of drummer and lyricist Neil Peart in 1974 for the band to pivot from being a decent blues-based rock band to one where prog influences and more cerebral lyrics help find their niche among the freaks and geeks. Flash forward to 2015, and the band with Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, and Neil Peart played their final musical notes together at the Forum in Los Angeles. Almost five years later, Neil Peart died from cancer in January 2020. And then a global pandemic hit, putting a good chunk of the world into various states of quarantine. In that space of time, 2015 to 2023, vocalist and bassist for Rush, Getty Lee, wrote two books. One was about bass guitars, and the second one was his memoir. It's that memoir that I want to focus my attention on in this episode. The book is called My Effing Life, and it's a hefty tome, over 500 pages. Getty Lee may not be a household name, but this book has clearly struck a chord with the public. As I'm recording this episode, and it's during the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday weekend, My Effing Life is number three on the New York Times hardcover bestseller list. Pretty good for a guy who's not quite ready to step out of the limelight. Indeed, the promotional machine that's been built out for this book is pretty impressive. Not only is Lee doing the usual radio and TV and newspaper interviews, but his book tour is betting that the rabid Rush fan base will pony up a couple of hundred bucks per ticket to see him in a theater being interviewed by a different person each night and having him read some passages from his autobiography. Wait, there's more. He'll also take a few questions from the audience. Plus, each ticket holder gets a copy of his book, which undoubtedly has had an effect on Lee's New York Times ranking. But as Woody Allen's character in the film Manhattan said at the beginning of the film, while he was narrating the first chapter of his book into a tape recorder, uh, let's face it, I want to sell some books here. So, the marketing of a book is one thing. The contents of a book are another. So what you're about to get in this episode is a whole lot of me talking about a whole lot of Getty Lee. November 1998, I was in Tower Records in Concord, California. That's near where I live. I saw that Rush had a new live album out called Different Stages. I also knew at the time that the band's future was dicey, 
after drummer Neil Peart's daughter Selena died in a solo vehicle car crash in 1996. And then around 10 months after Selena's death, Peart's wife, Jackie, died from lung cancer, though he would write in his book, Ghost Rider, that she died from a broken heart. The release of the live album was seen by me, maybe others as well, as a contractual placeholder of sorts, something to give the label to say, hey, we're still delivering on the albums. But it was also obvious that different stages was a goodbye to the fans if this was indeed the end of Rush. It turned out the end was actually a hiatus. Getty Lee included a note to the fans in different stages that read in part, but most significantly, we would like to thank our many fans around the world for their long-standing support, which, to our continuing amazement, has enabled us to hang out for so damn long, despite the inherent weirdness of our music. Best wishes to all, Getty. The long-standing support is pretty accurate, if understated. It's more like devotion. There aren't many bands that engender the kind of dedicated following that Rush has. In a way, they remind me of the Grateful Dead, the Beatles, Taylor Swift, Bruce Springsteen, and even Pearl Jam to an extent. Now, the fact that I've just listed off the top of my head uh, only a handful of artists just goes to show you that no matter how popular you are, how many albums you sell, and how many sold-out concerts you have, the kind of fan base that Rush has is very rare. Of course, I count myself as part of that legion of fans who have stuck with Rush over the decades. It's difficult to explain sometimes because, as Getty Lee said, their music is inherently weird. It's not all that accessible. And when people hear it for the first time, they're probably wondering why the lead singer screeches in such a high voice. Well, part of it's stylistic, right? But another part of it is the Holocaust. Yeah, the Holocaust. Getty Lee was born Gershon Elysier Weinrib. He's the son of Holocaust survivors. He writes about their lives in Poland, the rise of the Nazis, his family being rounded up and sent to concentration camps, and also about a love story. Yeah, a love story that centers on his parents, who in a way found a hopefulness for the future in a totalitarian society where it could feel hopeless when all around you is dehumanization and death. On the CBC program, The National, Getty Lee talks about the chapter he wrote about his parents' lives uh, during the Holocaust. One of the things I said to my book agent when I finally did acquiesce and agree to do a memoir was that I had to have a chapter about my parents' experiences because I felt the personality I am, the way I think, the way I look at the world, was formed, obviously, like everyone else, formed by your childhood experiences. But I grew up listening to these stories that affected me very much. And so that was one reason I was insisting on doing a chapter about their lives. Another reason was I wanted to pay homage to my mother, who I was very close with. But the third is that we're living in such dangerous times and uh, there's so much about that period and what happened to my family that is being forgotten or rewritten. And I felt I just wanted to remind people that this happened and there were witnesses to it. So for all those reasons, I felt it important to include them in my, my history. 
He's right. When we see some of the anti-liberal, more authoritarian movements in the world gaining power, the reality of safe harbors, those safe harbors where one can live one's life in peace and pursue one's happiness is not always a given. If the Holocaust looms large in the pages of my effing life, it also affected the way in which Geddy Lee sings. Granted, his voice is an acquired taste, but as he notes in his book, those wails that he sings expresses things like losing his father at 12 years old to heart failure, what his family had to endure during World War II, and even the career highs and lows early on that could have ended their dreams of being musicians when album sales started to tank because very few people understood their music. So in this part of the book, Getty gets down to it. And by it, I mean his voice. I liked singing, but wasn't insecure about it. At that point, I wasn't yet screaming like the, quote, damn howling in Hades, as my reputation would later have it. I was singing cream and blues songs in a sort of tenor soprano, or if you prefer, a soprano castrato style. I was a fan of the guys with a higher range like Steve Marriott in The Small Faces and Humble Pie. Humble Pie's performance, Rockin' the Fillmore, would be a hugely influential record to me and most of my peers. You can hear the influence of I Don't Need No Doctor on my early singing. We weren't so much a product of American blues as American blues that had been shipped to England, amplified, rockified, and sent back across the water to me, sitting in Toronto, waiting for my life to begin. I would often be later compared to Robert Plant, and while he certainly pushed me into the higher registers, I do think a comparison with Marriott would be more accurate. He had a soulful voice with a strong vibrato, but he rocked. Soon, John Anderson's mellifluous singing would affect me too. He had a high range, but his voice wasn't scratchy or abrasive. It was beautiful, soulful, and emotive. Another singer who impressed me was Roger Hodson on the early Supertramp records. Through the years, there were, of course, many others. I was a huge fan of Bjork later on in life. No one would think to make the connection, but there are certain words I sing in Rush in a very Bjork-like manner. I wasn't aiming for raspiness. I just responded intuitively to the music we wrote. Where my voice went was out of necessity, relating to what we were writing in the key we were writing in. We weren't very savvy about keys either. If the key we wrote in a song felt right, i just have to make do. What we came to learn was that in certain lower registers, my voice had no power. But when I booted it up to an octave, there was the power. Watching the movie Coda recently, I was struck by the scene in which the choir teacher tries to bring out his students' inner frustrations, coaxing her to sing from the gut. She's the only hearing member of a deaf family. Even if it's an ugly sound, he says, it will feel good. Turn your angst into power. And it dawned on me that my earliest vocal style may have also been rooted in my childhood, listening to the stories of what my parents had endured in the camps, suffering all that bullying and alienation, so that when I did begin to sing, it did come rushing out as a screaming banshee. I was releasing all those suppressed emotions just by stepping up to the mic and screaming, oh yeah. Of course, then I had to actually learn to sing. Yo, Getty makes a good point. Nowadays, there are so many ways artists use their voices to express themselves in music. But back when Rush was up and coming, 
The music journalists and critics at the time were part of the gatekeeping class that elevated music they liked and threw a lot of shade on artists they didn't care for, Rush being in the latter camp. To illustrate the kind of screeching that drove some critics to write really horrible things about Ged's voice, here's an isolated track from one of the band's more popular songs, Closer to the Heart. Well, closer to the heart, yeah, closer to your heart, closer to your heart, whoa. See? He's really shrieking there at the end, but that was his style and that's how he expressed himself. Incidentally, Getty's not a fan of that song, which kind of surprised me because it's an incredibly popular song for the band and I think they've played it most tours, but the fact that he has to sing it every night, he just never really got into it. He said it was kind of schmaltzy. Interesting, huh? Back to the critics for a moment. So, well, critics at NME or Cream, Circus, Rolling Stone, and maybe even Hit Parader were like, eh, Rush, they suck. Their fan base, uh, and with the accent on fanatical, was growing. It seemed like the more the press slagged Rush, the more their fans adored them. Indeed, the joke that Getty tells is that Rush is the world's largest cult band. And it wasn't until Hollywood started taking notice of Rush, first with the brilliant Freaks and Geeks in 1999, that things started to change for them. Freaks and Geeks was created by Paul Feig, and it only ran for one season. In episode six, which was called I'm With the Band, Jason Siegel's character, Nick, is playing drums to Rush's The Spirit of Radio. He's in his basement. And the way it's shot is that you only really hear Rush's music and Jason Siegel just really rocking out. He thought he was drumming just like Neil Peart, but the reality was he was pretty lousy, as evidence in this clip. By the way, if you haven't seen this show, it's available to stream and I think captures an accurate slice of Gen X in the early 80s in a way that I don't think has been captured since. Now, Hollywood wasn't through with Rush. In 2009, Rush was really brought into the mainstream with the comedy I Love You, Man, starring Paul Rudd and Jason Segel, both of whom are Rush fans in real life. 2010 saw the release of the documentary of the band called Beyond the Lighted Stage, which I think introduced Rush to people who may have never heard about the band and those on the fence about their music. Their popularity grew in part because the documentary got played on VH1 a lot. The documentary also helped diversify Rush's fan base to include younger people, women, and a larger contingent of folks with a variety of skin tones. Up until that point, Rush was mostly a band that appealed to white males. From the late 2000s to Rush's last show in 2015, the band really enjoyed A Third Life. Oh, and lest we forget that in 2013, during the Clockwork Angels tour, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Before the band went out on their final tour to commemorate 40 years as Rush, well, it was actually 41 years at that point, it was looking like Rush was probably going to call it a career. Getty writes about the moment when, at a band meeting, Neil announced that he wanted to retire. 
At the close of summer, Lurkst's health reports weren't good. I should add editorially that Lurkst is Alex Lifeson. That's one of his nicknames. He was in terrible discomfort and finally had been diagnosed and recommended for surgery. Basically, he suffered from bleeding ulcers, exacerbated by his stomach having somehow moved too high up into his abdomen, putting pressure on those ulcers and his lungs, which in turn gave him shortness of breath and arrhythmia. But if that wasn't enough to worry about, something was also stewing in Pratt. Pratt, editorially, you should note, is Neil Peart's nickname who was suddenly insistent on meeting with us and Ray, Ray's their manager, less than a week after Alex's operation. He was on a tight Canadian promotion schedule for his latest book, Far Near, on days like these, and told us there was no other option. This did not bode well. Being so intransigent, especially considering Lurk's condition, was quite unlike him, but obviously something was seriously up, so we agreed to his date. We met at a regular haunt of ours, out of the hospital for only four days, and unable to even bend forward with ease, Lurkst walked in slowly and struggled to take his seat, sitting bolt upright, fighting any show of discomfort for the sake of getting on with the meeting. Tension was in the air, which was supremely out of character for the three of us. After some uneasy repartee, Neil got to the point. He didn't want a tour in 2015. He told us he wanted to delay any gigs for at least a year to spend more time at home and added that he was pondering retirement. Boom. The R word. We were silent as he told us how proud he was of Clockwork Angels. It was our best piece of work, he said, but hard to top. And he feared that the wear and tear on his body would soon start letting his playing down. Even if it didn't, he could no longer justify leaving Olivia for the sake of touring. However incontrovertible those arguments seem, we tried to challenge them, but nothing moved him until Lurkst admitted that after all the physical issues he'd endured over the past few years, he too was close to being done with touring. As I sat there in shock, he'd never shared those feelings with me before. He went on to say that he would much prefer to tour sooner than later, before, that is, his health got worse. Hearing that, Neil's face scrunched up. He was clearly exasperated. He pointed his finger at Lurkst and said something to the effect that, before this meeting, I said to myself that the only thing that might weaken my resolve was that if Lurkst really wanted to tour now. We sat in silence for a while, then agreed to sleep on it. Retirement, it seems to me, is an incongruous word for a musician to use, and definitely not a concept I had or have ever considered. I couldn't even countenance the word. When he first mentioned the possibility, I instinctively thought, ridiculous. Musicians don't retire. Artists don't retire. They either work or they don't. But they always leave themselves open to when the muse may strike again. The door must always be left ajar, open to the possibility that feelings can and do often change. So why impose finality on it? I pushed those thoughts away as best as I could and hitched myself once more to the wagon, pouncing on a tour concept that I had in mind for a while, a theatrical rush retrospective, but in reverse, a de-evolution of sorts, not only musically, but visually and three-dimensionally too. Well, that was a tough conversation to have, right? Having two of your bandmates say, hey man, I think this is it. Well, the R40 tour 
was a success. Fans came out. We all knew it was probably the end. And once it all wrapped up, there was some bitter feelings. And I think Getty Lee expresses that in the following clip from a CBC interview Getty Lee did with Tom Power. Well, it came at a time that I was still um, getting over the end of the band. You know, Neil had retired. Uh, he hadn't retired from Rush. He had retired from music. Yeah. Uh, and I wasn't ready for that to happen. So I had some resentment. I had some feelings that were unresolved. Uh, Alex did as well. Uh, and uh, we had just started to communicate again, you know. So even though we had a bit of a stiff relationship at that moment, because, you know, he had left to be with his new family, as he should have been, yeah. you know, as he had earned the right. Yeah. And so I wrote him a note and I said, man, you know, I just listened to the drum solo. It's just so effing off, awesome. And he, he just opened up to me. He just wrote this, you know, effusive note. I mean, he's not a man to write short notes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, so he wrote me this long email and he talked about how frustrated he was that no one was making any comments about his drum solo all through the tour. Uh, we hadn't said in rehearsal that we liked, he'd worked so hard to build this drum solo and we didn't say anything. He still needed that a little bit from you I guys. guess he did, yeah. but who knew? Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. So, and I remember on many occasions uh, complimenting him. And besides, I sat there every single night listening to his drum solo. Interesting that even the most renowned rock drummer needed his bandmates to say, man, that drum solo is effing awesome after 40 plus years of playing together. It seemed like it was only a short time later, in August 2016, that Neil wrote to his bandmates that he had a brain cancer called glioblastoma. Neil lived over three years, and this is after surgery and treatment. But after he died in 2020, Rolling Stone did a very revealing piece on Neil's battle with cancer. It read in part, Peart handled his illness with heroic strength and stoicism, friends say, even as he fought to survive. Quote, he was a tough man, says Lee. He was nothing if not stoic, that man. He was pissed off, obviously, but he had to accept so much horrible shit. He got very good at accepting shitty news, and he was okay with it. He was going to do his best to stick around as long as he could for the sake of his family. And he did unbelievably well. He accepted his fate, certainly more gracefully than I would. Flash forward to 2023, and Getty Lee still gets emotional about the death of his friend and bandmate. But also in this interview with Tom Powers on CBC, he notes how difficult it was to keep quiet about Neil's condition. After he passed away, uh, you know, he had, he wanted to keep it quiet. Yeah. So we kept it quiet. That was his wish. And that was difficult because... You know, things leak out. People would hear something and then they would call you and they would ask you about, how's Neil? Is he okay? And you would just lie. You know, you would just change the subject or make a joke or, oh yeah, he's fine. Yeah, no problem. So uh, that was a burden. And uh, after he passed and they released, uh, you know, um, a press release about it, it was hard to break out of the silent mode that we had 
been in for three and a half years and I didn't feel right to talk about it. I, I felt like I would be betraying him in some way if I spoke about these intimate moments. And, and when I wrote the book, I was very careful to choose moments that I think he would approve of me sharing and that showed him in the light he deserved to be shown. In that interview, Ged has moments where he was silent. But I think you can hear it in his voice that it's difficult to talk about this time of Neil's life. Now, I don't want you to think that my effing life is a boo-hoo fest. Yes, the Holocaust, the death of friends, and the knowledge that loss is part of one's life is certainly there. And Getty Lee weaves those moments into the narrative that's hopeful. Yes, it's hopeful. That's not an easy thing to do. But he keeps the story funny. He reveals that he did things like ingested a lot of drugs and alcohol with his cocaine abuse well, use and abuse, really cresting in the 1980s. I'm sure he's surprised he survived it. And that his marriage survived as well. But as he notes, his father died at 45. So Getty Lee didn't think that he would live long either. So with that in mind, he just jumped into whatever life had to offer. Because, you know, it could be all over before you know it. Now, in critiquing this book, I want to note that I've read my fair share of rock bios and memoirs, and they often fall into a similar pattern. That goes something like this. The distant past, and that would be like childhood, school, the early years of a career, they're written with great detail. But as the story progresses towards the present, the details get less, well, detailed. Lee's autobiography does lapse into that from time to time, but he does redeem himself by pondering what's next. And what's next is more music. Whether it's with his buddy Alex Lifeson or with other musicians, it's clear Getty Lee is not ready for retirement. He still has things to say, music to make, and audiences to entertain. So for now, it appears that Getty Lee's effing life is about looking forward. And why not? He's given the world over 500 pages of looking back. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. If you like Planet LP, please give the podcast a short review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find us in the vast sea of podcasts out there. We're on the usual social channels too, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, and YouTube. And you can always email me at ted at planetlp.com if you're a musician and would like to forward some music to me. I will give it a listen and you might end up on a future episode of Planet LP. I'll be back soon with more talk about music and maybe books about music right here on the Planet LP Podcast. <laughs>